This is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Cox. This week, a special town hall all about how to fight back against GOP-led attacks on our public schools. So I'm imagining that pretty much everybody listening is familiar with what is happening to our public schools and school boards. They have been under attack by those who are bringing messages and tactics uh, from the GOP and the Christian right, agitating around things like mask mandates and any and all forms of education teaching equity in our schools. So on Tuesday, March 8th, we hosted a 90-minute town hall featuring activists, community members, and teachers from across the state talking about their experiences with these attacks and especially all about how we fight back. So we are pleased to bring you that full town hall now in its entirety. Joining us first tonight is Tinselin Sims. She's the co-director of We Make the Future Action and co-author of the guide and digital toolkit, Freedom to Learn. We're also joined by Ellen Floyd, a leader with Indivisible Tacoma, and Tanisha Lyons, a community advocate who was a candidate for Clover Park School Board in Lakewood in 2019. Petra Hoy is a community organizer and activist in Spokane Valley and is founder of Be the Change 509, which has a large Indivisible, excuse me, Indivisible membership. And finally, Terry Jess is a Bellevue teacher who was nominated for an NEA Social Justice Award. Also, we solicited testimonials from people throughout the state who are experiencing these GOP-led attacks on our school boards. And I'll be reading a few of those testimonials throughout tonight's program. And with that, I'll turn things over to my friend, our moderator, Stephen Cox. Thank you, Kat, and thank you to everybody for being here tonight. And we are honored to kick things off with one of the foremost messaging experts on this subject, Tinselin Sims. She is co-director of We Make the Future Action. Tinselin, thank you so much. I know it's late where you are. You're on the East Coast. So thank you for taking the time tonight. Thank you. Thank you for having me and such a wonderful uh, description of who I am. I'll, I'll make sure I send you a couple of dollars for that. That's worthy of pay. <laughs> <laughs> it's my pleasure, my friend. Uh, so listen, I want to start with an overview here um, before we get to you know how we attack this problem. And, you know, um, we're certainly going to talk a lot with our other, pa- other panelists about what's happening here in Washington state. But I really want to acknowledge that this problem is happening all over the country. So let's you and I start with a big picture. Why are these attacks on our schools happening? Well, these attacks are really a part of an old playbook that has existed for a while about how do you take um, and like voters, people in this country and divide them in ways so that you don't do not have to speak about the real issues that are affecting people's lives, but you can create so, um, hysteria over social issues, whether manufactured or real. And in part, this time, it's certainly manufactured these issues that they're creating. And it's, it's a part of a, uh, a tradition that is like, make people afraid of people who are different from them, use racism as a tool to divide, get people to distrust government, get people to think that um, everyone's against them. And it really helps people not have to share a real vision for how our country can move forward, how to address the things that are really happening in people's lives and affecting them. Um, but it, it, it gets us a, a certain group pretty stirred up about these social issues. I want to talk about the ramifications, particularly for the 22 elections and everything that you're saying there. But I, I want to make this explicit because when we prepared for our discussion, you, you made it quite explicit. Um, I, I will ask why they are doing this. And, and it, it is my understanding really that they want to get rid of our public schools. Am I accurate in that assessment? Well, this is a part of a long attack on public schools. Like if you think about all the things that have happened in our schools 
um, over time, uh, the funding that has been lost to schools. These folks have been missing from that conversation, right, about our public schools. When you talk about um, ensuring that teachers have the resources they need to actually teach our children and keep our, our folks safe in schools, those are not the things that they're talking about, right? They're, these are a part of a long attack of like taking resources from our schools, stopping us from having an education system that ensures that no matter where you live or where you come from or what color your skin is, you all have an um, equitable access to education and opportunity in this country. This is rooted in that. And they're using this as an opportunity to attack our schools, attack our educators, um, and make it difficult for all of our children to have what they need. You have talked about the connection to, you know, getting people riled up. Certainly this is being used, I think, uh, cynically and I have to say very effectively at this point uh, in connection with the 22 midterms to really uh, stir up the base. Yeah. Yeah. This is totally a base tactic. There's a there's a small a small group of folks who are really riled up about this and they get really excited and they get really active and they get really vocal. Part of the research that you mentioned at the beginning that we did, the Freedom to Learn research, which we did in partnership with NEA, um, with ASO Communications um, and Lake Research Partners, it really looked at this issue and where do folks stand on it? And then how do we best message about that? And when we did this research in our focus groups and in our dial tests, we found that most people find this to be a non-issue. Most people are not really upset about the things that they have manufactured over time. In fact, people want our schools to be diverse. People want our children to have an honest and accurate accounting of the past so that they can know how to prepare for the future. Like most people find these protests, these uh, book burnings and all these things that they have done to be uh, a bad thing and not something that they want around them. Um, but it it does manufacture a lot of attention for some folks and it gets headlines and it prevents people from having to put a real vision forward about um, this country. I, I want to highlight what you're saying here because, you know, you're referencing a polling that people can find in the guide. And by the way, I'm just going to let people know ahead of time that Cat uh, will be providing uh, a link to the guide and the digital toolkit as well. But uh, I, I just want to highlight this one line from the polling that you referenced, which is uh, the majority of people polled believe that uh, we should, quote, teach the best, both the best of our achievements and our worst mistakes. So that, as you say, means the majority of people were really on our side, at least on the curriculum issue. I was very heartened to, to find that out. Were, were you surprised when, when you looked at the data? Well, something I try to do going into these research projects is to not have assumptions. Mm. <laughs> that way I'm best prepared <laughs> to kind of receive what I learn in the time. Um, I was I was really surprised at how much people were kind of like, this doesn't make any sense. Like just really baffled by it um, in such a way that many folks see these uh, protests, they see these things happening in the world and they just kind of say, this is so wild. This is so unbelievable that I'm not even gonna give it my attention because obviously this could never come to be. And what we found, you know, surely in some areas that this has actually resulted in legislation that is da um, damaging to our public schools and our children. But most people think that it's just so backwards and behind that they in fact don't pay it a lot of attention because they think, why? Mm. 
One of the things, obviously, that we're here to do tonight is to start to call attention to this in a big way, certainly to mobilize people on our side of things, uh, and really then to talk about some of those, you know, talk to some of those people who are persuadable, who can be brought over to our side. Uh, and I'll get to that through this route. I think I really want to go down the messaging route because this is really, really your wheelhouse. Um, and it's going to be a big part of how we fight back. Um, so, you know, you talk in Freedom to Learn um, about the three aspects of messaging. You talk about values, our shared values, villain, uh, who's to blame, and vision, which is what we want. So three Vs we're working with here. So let's start with values. What are the shared values here that you think we should all focus on when we're messaging? What we want to share is uh, one of the biggest distractions that our opposition does is they get us off our message and get us responding to the things that they say so that we spend all of our time refuting the things that they've said instead of putting a clear vision forward of what can actually be achieved and what we want to see in the world. So if you think about a vision, some of the messaging that we use in the in the guide is like a value would be children's freedom to learn to be themselves and pursue their dreams people agree with that, right? Or children of different races coming together to learn from mistakes of our past to create a better future. People agree with that. That is a vision for what we desire to see in the world. And we have to think about all the different ways um, that our vision could live out based off of where we live and what we wanna see um, happen. Uh, can I ask you just about a couple of, of just very specific framing issues that you call out? Uh, one is you say, and you're, you're touching on this already, to not negate the opposition's talking points. But in, you call out specifically saying when talking about CRT, do not say CRT is not about teaching white people to feel bad about themselves. Uh, you, you, you turn that phrasing around. Uh, why? Talk, talk a little bit about why. Um, the main reason is that whatever you negate, you actually promote. Right. So whatever you repeat, that is what you give your audience to hear. The truth about these attacks on critical race theory um, in schools is not uh, whether or not um, it's actually being taught in schools. They are actually using this as a catch all term that they've created for themselves to throw anything into that basket that makes critical race theory. Uh, a thing. And so as you could see in some of the video that clip that you just showed, they had all these other things that they lumped in one bag to say is critical race theory. When you stand in front of a group and you say, we do not teach critical race theory, what people hear is we teach critical race theory, <laughs> right. <laughs> right? Like it's the same thing. If you imagine if you go to your child and you say, did you eat the last cookie? And they say, I did not eat the last cookie. You immediately look like, hmm, I don't know. <laughs> the last, <laughs> right? You give, you're giving airtime to the opposition's message. What you want to do is talk about the things that you desire to see in the schools. What are the great things that are happening in, in your schools? And what are the real ways that we can create change to make our schools better? Don't spend time repeating their message. The other thing I'll just say about that is sometimes people have never heard your opposition's message, right? They've never heard the attacks against you. And so if you spend your precious bit of time in front of a group refuting all the things that your opposition has said about you, you've in fact spread their message for them. You have done their work for free. Don't, don't ever do that. <laughs> Not so I have a number of questions about that when we get into our next sec section here, which is is the, the villain. The second part of the second V is, is villain. 
You say that it's important to not make the parents the villain here. They certainly are the most visible part of all of this, but you believe that the blame really needs to be directed at politicians. Can you talk about why? Right. Parents are being used like it's a it's a it's a media show. Right. And, and parents are the ones that are being used by some pretty um, skilled elected officials in order to uh, promote the ideas. And so why we say don't use parents as a villain is that if you ask anyone, do you think a parent should have a role in their children's education? They're going to say, yes, of course, parents should have a role in the children's ed education. So if you get out and start all telling all the reasons parents should uh, not have a role in the ch their child's education, you look off to most people because they actually believe the opposite. And, but the, what we know is that this is being used as a political tool to divide folks and to distract folks from what is actually um, happening at this time. And so you want to place this squarely at the feet of those um, elected officials, corporations, um, for-profit um, education centers that are using this as an opportunity to actually uh, attack our public school system. Well, so just as as an exercise, without naming anybody specific, because obviously everybody listening here is going to have different politicians uh, at different levels uh, where they live. But if you could just give sort of a generic example of how you would shift the message away from blaming the parents and toward, as you say, elected officials, uh, you know, corp corporate powers and, and things like that. Sure, I'll actually give you one example from one of the narratives that we have. Um, there's a phrase that we use, like, while educators work to deliver our children at accurate and honest education, some politicians are trying to turn us against schools so, um, sorry, so they can censor the lessons taught in our classrooms, deny certain children resources, and write people who look like them out of our history books, right? We are actually putting a compare and contrast of our educators who are coming to school each day trying to give our children the best chance at a great life and um, the skills that they need to survive with those who are trying to distract and divide and we use the language of certain politicians. If I could just follow that road a little bit further, we know that the opposition here is falsely equating public education with government overreach. Like, for example, we heard this uh, in the GOP rebuttal to a Biden State of the Union speech. How do we counter that kind of thing? Well. The thing about it is that the job, and if you ask most people, the job of government is to help people make people's lives better, right? And people believe that. And so it's really easy on our end to kind of fall into the opposition's framing by talking bad about the government. But if you think about all the things that you think our families, our communities, our neighborhoods need, they rely on effective government to actually make those things happen. Government must work and it must work properly. And so we have to avoid those pitfalls that they're actually trying to make. It's the same thing about healthcare. People want access to healthcare, but the main attack that people, the opposition has used around ensuring that people have adequate access, I shouldn't say access because that's wrong, to ensure people have healthcare, like are able to go see their doctor, mm -hmm. are able um, to um, take care of their loved ones, is by saying it's a government thing. The government is gonna hurt your healthcare. It's a it's a typical talking point that they use to distract people and to disparage anything that helps us collectively and ensures that we all have access to the things that we need.
We had mentioned the parents earlier. We saw the, the parents in these uh, school board meetings at, at the top in our, in our video. They can be frightening. They can be loud. They can be aggressive. They can be dangerous and violent. Um, how do you recommend people respond? Because we're ultimately looking to mobilize people to go to these meetings. So, so how ultimately, when these confrontations happen, do you, uh, do you advise people to respond? So uh, I'll give you an example of some partners that we had in North Carolina, what they did in this. They actually had what they called a freedom to learn party where, where they came together during February to talk about like the freedom to learn about all of um, um, our heroes and all the people who have made America great. And they focused on, and I should not have used that phrase, but all the people, <laughs> I don't know where that came from. That's, trauma. That's a trauma response. But all of the That's people that made, <laughs> all the people that made uh, this um, country wonderful. And they touched on like Black, Black History doing Black History Month. And they put together a reading list that they actually sent to a particular um, their lieutenant governor to say, here's a great reading list so that you can learn about all the people that have made um, our, our, our state wonderful, that have made this a, a great a place for us to live. And so this is like some of the ways that people are responding in this moment is to come together to lift up the things that they want to be taught in their schools. Um, I've seen groups have like read-ins where they come together and they don't necessarily go toe to toe with those folks because that not, is not always the safest thing to do, yeah. but just read some of the books that they found to be wonderful um, and that they want to keep in their schools to lift up the stories and the people whose uh, stories we should be celebrating and talking about. And those are some of the ways that we've seen parents be really active and really visible at sharing what they want to see in their schools because that's what we have to show. We cannot spend all our time talking about the things that we don't want. We have to show people what it is that we do want and come together around those ideas um, so that others who may be a bit on the persuadable line can hear that and move with us towards that vision. Yeah, yeah. And, and in fact, we're going to talk about vision in just a moment because that is the final V. I do want to mention in terms of safety concerns, I want to just call something out. Uh, Representative Tana Sen uh, sponsored HB 1630, which just passed the legislature this week, and it establishes restrictions on weapons in certain meetings, including school board meetings and polling places. So I think that is a very, very positive step toward keeping people safe in these environments because we know that uh, there have been uh, armed people showing up to these, these meetings here in the state. So let's talk about what we want then. So what is the vision that you lay out in the guide? So we lay out a, a vision where our schools are community places where people, like you have to lay out what our schools are for. They are places where people take care of one another, they come together um, and they build community and space. And they think about how to make our country um, move forward, right? If you ask parents, what do they want uh, their schools to do? And they often talk about, they want their schools to prepare their children for tomorrow. They want their, um, their schools to prepare their children um, with these skills that they need to earn a good living and have a good life, right? And so with our vision, we have to put that forward because the people who are talking about this critical race theory stuff, they don't wanna talk about why uh, haven't our schools been adequately funded? Why are we in fact defunding our schools? They don't wanna talk about why um, some children don't have access to the latest technology or good 
good books, good decent textbooks that aren't ripped and torn. They don't want to talk about the facilities. And those are the things that parents actually want to talk about. And those are the things that they want to see happen. And so we have to paint a vision where our schools are different, where our educators are supported and have what they need. And so this is what we want to keep painting that vision of what it could look like. The thing I always tell people is that for many of us, um, we've seen uh, so much of what we want has not been visible for us because we've just been fighting for it for so long. It is the work of science fiction. And we have to keep reminding people about what that looks like because it's not top of mind for folks. We've been at uh, in fights to just to get the basics to actually get the stuff that we um, that will make our lives even better is the work of fantasy. And so we have to constantly paint that vision of what our communities could look like, what they could smell like, what they could feel like, um, what people could do in them so that that vision becomes something that people wanna, wanna actually make a move towards and they're willing to speak up uh, for. And, you know, we were talking earlier about how there is this rather large group of persuadable people who we need to kind of get off the sidelines. Are, are you talking about using this vision, the, the, the vision that you're painting, as a way to motivate these people, the, the, the so-called persuadables, to make it compelling to them to get involved? Yes. One of the things that we always say about our messaging is that you have to have a message that really resonates with your base, because if your base gets really excited about your message, they really like it. They'll like spread it along. They're going to talk about it at the water cooler. They're going to like uh, at the at the church meeting. It's going to be a conversation about it. Like they're going to have, uh, you know, just tea with friends. They'll bring these things up. Your message when it comes from you, if you're at representing an organization or a particular group, is kind of people are skeptical about it but they want to hear it from the people around them. And what makes a good message is one that spreads. And so when we get our base excited about these things, we're talking about the stuff that's really impacting their lives, a real dream for what tomorrow could look like. Those are the things that they will repeat and share. And that's how we move this persuadable group along. Something we always tell folks about persuadables is that they are actually listening to both sides and they can toggle back and forth between those both sides. They're not like, what is the greatest compromise that I can find in life? <laughs> That's not the thing that they're looking for, right? It's yeah. really that they're holding two frames in their mind and whoever talks to them most often, most consistently, most loudly is the frame that gets triggered and it's the one that they'll respond to. So if we are quiet in these moments, if we're not actually saying something, about what's happening, about our tax on schools and our tax on um, education, they're not going to hear us. So we have to be saying something. We have to be speaking out because otherwise that other side seems like they're the most vocal, the most active. And those folks will think, well, maybe they have a point and I should listen to what they're saying. Well, this leads me logically into my next question, which is about media coverage. Uh, I think it's clear from our, our, our opening video that the media is not incentivized to cover this issue in a way that is advantageous to us. So I'll just ask you, and this is an enormously broad question, because of course it, it you know it, it's it's earned media, it's social media, it covers a just an enormously broad swath of of, of media coverage, but it just sort of painting with large brushstrokes. How do you think we begin to shift media coverage our direction on this issue? We got to show up 
and show out, right? Many times we've let these narratives go unopposed of what these folks are saying. Meaning we've watched it, we've seen it, and we're just kind of like, ugh, that's sickening. Or, ugh, I don't want to be around that. But what that means is that when the media shows up, they're only hearing from that group, right? That's the only group there with a story to tell, with a vision, with a message out there. We have to show up too. We have to share what we want to see in the, in the world. We have to be promoting this message as much, much as possible so that that narrative is not just out in the world unopposed. We have to contest for airspace by showing up, having our events, making our voices proud, um, writing it, putting it on our social media, putting it out in the world, because that's how we can get folks um, to see and hear us and how we can get some media attention around it. You know, one of the things that you and I mentioned when we were uh, preparing for this is the fact that, you know, tens of thousands of people have uh, visible uh, affiliation across the state of Washington. You mentioned that collective action can often get more press coverage, right? Yes. Coming together with folks to work together. You all are an amazing group and you have an amazing opportunity to let folks see and hear what most parents want, what, what most community members want. And we can't continue just to allow those messages out there unopposed. I say that over and over again. Hopefully you'll walk away saying, I didn't hear anything else from Tinsley other than we cannot let that message go out there unopposed because it's it's what people think people are really like leaning towards. And we know the research tell, tells us that's absolutely not the case. You are on the winning side. Uh, yes, please. I, you, you could say that a thousand times. I, I really <laughs> want to, I, I want to drive that point home. And I think we started our discussion there and I would like to, uh, we're just about to wrap up with you here, but I will just ask you to encapsulate what are the most important actions people can take right now? I would say, you know, you have to let it be known to your elected officials that these things are going on in your area. Like, don't let it, don't let these things end. Continue to make your voice heard. Organize. I say this all the time. My, um, I remember John Lewis, I met one time and I feel like every question someone asked him, he said, are you organized? <laughs> like, <laughs> like, great question. Are you organized? You all are already organized. So make something happen. Create the the pictures that the news can see, create the opportunities, create your, um, what do you call it? Your, your recommended reading list, like our folks in North Carolina did. Like, what's your recommended reading list that you're saying you want your, your children to hear? Um, they had folks um, of who are prominent in their state say, here's a book that I read, how it changed my life, right? Just having people to speak up in an affirmative way about what it looks like when we give our children an accurate and honest history um, so that they can actually prepare for the future. If you ask people, parents in particular, why they want their children to have an accurate and honest um, accounting of history, it's because they want them to learn from the mistakes of the past. And we have to make sure that we are out there saying that over and over again, because people agree with us. Those who do not know their history are doomed to repeat it. And boy, we keep doing that. We're doing it as we speak right now. Um, yeah, so history, enormously important, and as is the, the writers that we that we read and, and the mathematicians that we study and all across the board. Um, so we're at the end of our time here. I'm wondering if you have time for just a couple of audience questions here that have come in. Uh, sure. You tell me what your heart out is. 
No, we're good. We're good. It's okay. 10 o'clock, 1030 my time. You got me now. We might as well stick in it. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, you know, uh, one of our uh, panelists, Petra, who we're going to hear from in a moment, is in a school district, a very red school district, where a lot of people on, on our side uh, just want to believe this problem is going to go away, that it's going to burn itself out and that these people are going to go away. What would you say to convince them otherwise? Um, I would say I wish I lived in that world that you you live in. It's not it's not going to go away. What it is 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 a tactic of divide, right? So this is the story of right now. I will tell you this: it may not be critical race theory forever, but it will be a new story of division. If you remember a couple of years ago, it was the um, uh, it was around immigration. That was the big thing, right? They use these things of racial division continuously over and over again to stoke folks' racial fears, to get them uh, excited and in a panic so that they will then be activated to move in the way that they've described. So I will stick with you around, it may not be critical race theory five years from now, but there will be some way that they will find a way to try to divide folks using racial fears because they've been doing it since the time of Nixon, probably before, right? It is a key part of their their platform in order to do that. And I think that um, we've seen too much legislation pass already uh, because it's been unopposed. Um, We haven't organized folks to show up for those school board elections to show up um, on a very localized level because that's where we're seeing this legislation take, it's not national, it's very, very local that we're seeing these really divisive bills and and they will still be here from years from now. So we can't let that happen. You know, you mentioned uh, previous uh, iterations of this and, you know, I went to school, uh, college in the 90s and it was political correctness. And so, you know, it's kind of, it was ever thus. And so these are the sorts of things that are secular uh, and I, I, cyclical rather. And uh, yeah, Petra, I hope that answers your question. Um, We had a question from uh, someone who I I figure as a board member, since he asked this question, it's Joe from Indivisible Whidbey. He said, uh, what can current board members do to help? Well, I would say don't stay silent, right? Many folks have chosen to stay silent because uh, they feel like, I don't know, are people like really thinking this thing? Like, am I on the, like, do I have the masses with me? And I would say you do, you have the masses with you. Um, we have a lovely guide that I Kat is gonna share out with folks. You can use it to find talking points and ways of um, speaking about the issue. It even includes stuff like, say this, don't say that, like little tips and tricks along the way, along with just fuller narratives that you can use over the time. We've produced videos and all kinds of things that you could share on your, um, what do you call it, on your website or on your social media accounts. I think that the the job, and, and then also let folks know how they can support you so that it looks you know, like it shows the real accounting that people are behind you because we have to stand with our um, those elected officials who are actually standing with us. And I know Kat just dropped a link in there uh, in the chat uh, for the Freedom to Learn uh, digital toolkit. Y'all, I cannot recommend it enough. Um, it is so thorough and it is, it's, it's like a skeleton key. You, it, it, I think, will apply to not just this particular situation, but messaging situations across the board. Uh, it's just expertly written stuff. Uh, let's, let's, uh, we'll, we'll ask you one more question, then we'll let you go here. Um, 
so uh, Joe, my, my buddy Joe Colombo from uh, Indivisible Puyallup says, I don't know if, if Tinsel can answer this, but how did church, because you saw this uh, clip uh, from Experienced Church at the very beginning here, uh, how do churches get away with saying this sort of thing without having their nonprofit status removed or revoked? Any idea on that? I have no idea about that. <laughs> I don't know um, about that. But what we've seen uh, to connect with that, what we've seen is like this actually morphed with other issues, right? Like I said, critical race theory has become a dumping ground for anything that folks don't like. So we've seen people talk about it as attack. Mm-hmm. They've used messaging to say like, it's coming against churches or religion because they've often ta- um, attached uh, issues of um, uh, the LGBTQ community to critical race theory, and they found ways to like find inroads there as well. So I would I don't know why those things are happening. Um, uh, that's a very that, good that's question. fair. Yeah, I I, I figured that, <laughs> that was going to be kind of a tough answer. So we'll, let's leave it with this. So uh, Madeline from Indivisible uh, Olympia Indivisible asks, and I think this is a very salient question here, and we'll leave it on this. How can we fight funding for charter slash private schools with public funds? You got to show up. That, the, those things usually happen on the local level, and you got to show up <laughs> and say that you don't want your funds used for that. You know, that's another voice in this and another villain in this story as well um, is around the the way that public funds are being like siphoned from um, public schools to charter schools. Um, And some of that has we've seen in some places where those two attacks have come together, the critical race theory, along with the, the privatization of education have come together to really leverage attacks on our public schools. And so I would say you gotta be active. Those things usually come up for um, a vote at the local level. Like I said, these attacks happen at the very, very local level. Mm-hmm. The state races, a little bit harder to get stuff passed nationally, certainly harder to get things like this across, but you see them at the very local level. Well, we're going to leave it there with you. And honestly, I cannot thank you enough for taking the time. Tinsel and Sims, you are just magnificent. I really, I, I, I'm so grateful to everything you've done, uh, certainly uh, on with, uh, you know, we make the future action and then also for, for the guide and just for your time tonight. Can we all give uh, Tinsel and some, some hands, some love thank here? Thank you all for having me. I really appreciate you thinking I had something good enough to share. <laughs> <laughs> You have, please come back. <laughs> Kat and I were talking about how we, we very much want you to come back. Uh, if we didn't get to your question, we will be having a Q&A session at the very end tonight. Uh, so in a moment, we have a very special treat. We have a video message from the Superintendent of Public Instruction for Washington State, Chris Rakedall. But first, Kat is going to read one of our audience testimonials that we submitted. Uh, we had you submit. So we're, we're very excited to be reading a few of these. Kat, uh, over to you. Thanks, Stefan. The first testimonial comes from Beth, who's a parent and community member in Bonnie Lake, Washington. Her comments pertain to the Sumner Bonnie Lake School District. Our local board, our local school board has been under attack since at least summer of 2021. I attended my first meeting in person in the fall and witnessed community members wearing shirts and hats with profanity and Nazi symbols. The entire session was like mob mentality. The attendants were not following any of the rules. For example, they kept taking their masks off. Additionally, they were booing the one or two people who spoke up as being civil, logical humans, et cetera. Most of the public comments were personal attacks against the school board members themselves, complaining about how masks 
masks will kill more kids than COVID. And unexpectedly, they began attacking the word equity in schools, as well as the social emotional learning curriculum. We also have a local right wing city councilman who shows up at every single meeting, often with all or part of his extended family, his wife, adult son, adult daughter in law, etc. And he strategically signs up at the very end of the sign up window so that he can always have the last word and rebuke all the commenters he didn't agree with during the night. He always makes a point of saying, uh, why his family does not allow their kids to attend public school. In general, the anti-mask, anti-vax, anti-equity comments are loaded with extreme right-wing talking points and they rarely make sense. It's a coordinated effort for sure. So Beth uh, and Sumner, uh, we, we, and Bunny Lake, we so thank you for that. And now uh, we are going to have our video from Superintendent of Public Instruction, Chris Rakedahl. Hey everyone, this is Chris Rakedale, Superintendent of Public Instruction for the state of Washington. Thanks for being a part of um, this incredible segment here. You know, our schools in the last couple of years have been a very complicated place, and uh, they often reflect their local communities, and that's generally a really good thing. We want communities to elect their local school boards. Uh, those are taxpayer dollars. They should have a say in really the educational components of their schools. What we've seen in the last couple of years, though, is obviously this national energy, this, this large culture war really grounded in kind of aggressive ideology and not really the fundamental principles of local educational delivery. Um, so, you know, my observation has been, uh, for the most part, folks doing an amazingly great job around our state and in their districts. They reflect their communities, but they're balancing that with this really powerful moment, particularly COVID response. But in a couple of places, it's gotten a little out of control. So we've seen a lack of civility. Uh, we've seen an aggression like we've never seen before uh, in some of our board meetings. And that's spilling into board decisions uh, in some cases. Uh, fortunately, most of those we've sort of been able to bring back in line and make sure that they're aligned to the standards. But I will say being in public education is about representing your taxpayers and being responsible to statewide taxpayers because three quarters of our system is funded from the state. Um, six or seven percent from the federal government, which leaves only 15, 16, 17 percent from local levy dollars. So when you're a local board member, it's about your sort of community values, but it is a responsibility to serve uh, the state interests. So let's talk specifically, though, about where that balance comes into play who you hire locally, the curriculum that you adopt, the lesson plans, your bell schedules, whether you're going to have a K-6 or a K-8 school, um, all of that education stuff locally determined, locally controlled. What's not locally controlled by school board members, though, are critical health components during a national crisis like we saw with the COVID pandemic. Those standards are set by state Department of Health or local health officers or governor's emergency proclamations, which we saw in our state and in most others. It's in those moments where school board members have to focus on education and let those public health experts really do their thing. And again, we're kind of getting through a bunch of that, but the lack of civility that it created has got some ongoing impacts on our schools. And I just want to acknowledge that. Grateful for anyone who runs for the school board uh, and who serves their community, but also they have to have a responsibility to serve the overall good of the state and know when it's an educational question versus a public health question. Lastly, this kind of consternation has led some folks to say, well, why don't we voucher in our state like, you know, Mississippi or Alabama or Florida or one of these other states? And the simple answer is <clears throat> it's incredibly regressive when it comes to segregation. 
<clears throat> I want you to think about this. Imagine if you got a voucher for law enforcement. Instead of having any local law enforcement at all, you got a private voucher for a security system in your home. Imagine if there were no fire departments and instead you got a fire voucher and you can put in your own sprinkler system. Well, the few hundred dollars you might get for the equivalent of your taxes will not buy you a sprinkler system. It will not buy you a private security system. Getting the few hundred dollars back that we pay in equivalent taxes to keep these amazing state parks open? Well, you couldn't pay for a trip to Disneyland, a private voucher system where you go get your own private recreation. When we lose these public institutions and assets, whether it's our school system, our park system, our fire protection services, our law enforcement, we lose them forever. And if you think about a state like Florida, for example, who vouchered, <clears throat> not, not a lot, but a little, they give you a $5,000 voucher. Well, a lot of wealthy families take that to a $15,000 private institution with tuition. So they concentrate their, their wealthy, privileged communities because nobody else can afford the difference between their voucher and the private tuition, which leaves your traditional public schools um, with a very, very segregated system. Uh, for the low-income families and those who struggle more because the only thing they can put forward is their voucher. It's a bad system. There's no evidence of it working academically. It does resegregate our school system. So in the midst of all this consternation, uh, I would just encourage everyone to really respect local school boards and the hard job that they have in local schools and communities. Know that they've got a lot of control over the education components, not the health components, whether it's masking or other components. <clears throat> and at the end of the day, our community schools are best when they are diverse, when all parts of the community participate, when students learn from each other. Segregation never has value, and it certainly doesn't in public education. Hope that's been helpful. Take care. Well, how grateful are we to have uh, uh, Superintendent of Public Instruction, Chris Rakedall, on the job. Uh, before we move on to our next segment, uh, one thing I want to uh, recognize is uh, Liz Gracier is here. She is newly elected a city council member from Stillicom. She was on our town hall series. Welcome to you, my friend. And uh, we are going to hear from our dear friends in Tacoma and Lakewood in just a moment. But before we do, uh, uh, Kat is going to read another one of our testimonials. Yes, this one's from Wendy, who lives in Washougal, Washington, just east of, east of Portland, Oregon. And Wendy's a parent of a student in the Washougal School District. She writes, our school district school board meetings started being attacked in May of 2021. There were attendees that refused to wear masks. Additionally, police had to be called because of their terrible behavior. This group of moms, none of whom have, have kids in schools, by the way, has harassed our school board ever since and shows no signs of stopping. They've actively worked to unseat school board members and were reported to the PDC and were found to be operating as a PAC. Nevertheless, they refused to comply with PDC rules. They continue to harass other parents and anyone that supports a district, myself included, bringing proud boys to our school board meetings to bully those who do not agree with them. Our school district is small and doesn't have the resources to record video meetings, uh, to video record meetings, excuse me. But I have dozens of personal videos, including one from last August in which a proud boy threatens the board. The group refused to wear masks at our last in-person school board meeting in January. So it was shut down and meetings were moved back online. Then they threatened to protest at the school board members' homes if it wasn't changed back to in-person. Much of this was reported on by Vice, which quoted me in a recent article about the Proud Boys, and I'll drop that into chat. 
Thank you for that, Kat, and thank you, Wendy, uh, in Washougal, uh, for that. Uh, so next, we are going to look at the problem from the local perspective here in the state, specifically Tacoma and Lakewood, and we have two of our friends with us. I'm very excited about this. Community advocate Tanisha Lyons and Ellen Floyd with Indivisible Tacoma. Hello to you both. How are you tonight? All right, so Ellen, uh, I think we elected, we're going to start with you on this. Now, I know you are aware of the urgency of the problem. Uh, you were actually the person, uh, you and Tanisha and, and, and Liz were the ones who brought all of this to our attention. You're ultimately the reason why we're talking about this tonight. So if you would, let's start by having you talk a little bit about how you see the stakes in this fight. Well, the stakes are extremely high. I think a lot of our neighbors don't realize that their school board, the, the board members and the, direct, the whole direction of their school district can change really quickly and you know, without much fanfare, without too much notice. Uh, people don't always pay attention to school board elections and Indivisible Tacoma um, kind of got alerted to this. Um, Liz and a couple others uh, saw what was happening in Lakewood and uh, there was a race that wouldn't have maybe been noticed and some extremists started bringing um, resources into this school board race. And so then we started seeing that this was not just a Lakewood Pierce County problem. This is all over the country, as you all know. And so we started looking at it and the stakes are high because the people um, that uh, Tanisha will talk more about it, but you know, if the board changes to a majority of the, um, you know, these extremists, then things do change in the district and the stakes are extremely high. I mean, you lose, you lose, you're likely to lose a good superintendent, um, the diversity and equity policies probably go away. Um, LGBTQ and, and immigrant students are likely to be marginalized. I mean, there are so many, you know, and as, as um, Superintendent Reichdahl pointed out, the um, essential segregation can um, sort of start recurring. They, you know, we might have teachers with body cams, the things that they mention in these rallies and these meetings. So the stakes are really high and the long game is to privatize public education. That is the conservative long game to take over our schools. And I think it's really important. This is, um, you know, we, we should draw a direct line. We see the kind of authoritarianism that a lot of people admire. And um, we see Putin, you know, taking over a country and we see authoritarianism being admired here. So the things about telling teachers what to say and do and banning books, these are things we want to really watch out for. And so the stakes really, really, really are high. Thank you for framing it that way. And really, I mean, I think it's it's fair to say we're in an existential fight for our public schools. I think we can maybe just put a, a really, you know, a yellow highlighter on that and say that is what we're up against here. You know, um, Tinsel talked about how we really want to villainize the politicians behind this. These are the people who are behind, behind the scenes who are working. So just very briefly, can you just give people who are outside of your area um, who the key players are on the Republican side in Tacoma and Pierce County? Yeah, um, the key players are um, the pastors at the churches who engage with the Republicans. So, for example, um, two people um, are two of the, okay, the pastors um, and the Pierce County Republican chair, Dave McMillan, uh, former state committee woman, Jan Milhans, she's also an NRA activist. Um, these are people who who help organize the rallies at the churches and, and um, 
you know, they're, they're using, uh, we have, um, see, we have uh, former chair Marty McClendon, we have state GOP chair Caleb Heimlich, who lives in Graham here in Pierce County, um, and prominent elected officials. You saw Amy Kruver in the video, uh, Pierce County Council member. Uh, our Pierce County um, executive, Bruce Stammeyer, shows up at these sometimes. And of course, 26th LD representative, Jesse Young, who's pretty well known, and uh, 25th LD uh, state senator, Chris Gildon. And these people show up and um, you know get people excited about the connection between political power and the church. And a couple of those people are actually members of the experienced church in, in Puyallup. It does seem like, and pardon me, uh, this is this is kind of a, a strange analogy to make. It seems seems like they're singing out of the same choir book. All of these 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 various Republicans are are very much on the same page about this. And um, Tanisha, I want to you know shift to you now and, and talk about this. First of all, I know we're going to talk about the connection with uh, some of the board members on the Clover Park School Board. Uh, which is where you had run, and uh, I know that there are a couple of, of people there that you that we very much want to get to know here in our discussion here. But I'll just ask you the same question that I asked Ellen, which is, how do you see the existential stakes for the fight that we're in here for Lakewood and Tacoma schools? Um, I I just want to say the house is on fire, and I say that um, in a in a way to one alarm people at what's really happening around us. Um, the Republican party has declared our local races and our local school boards as ground zero. And they're using our school boards as a way to cultivate politicians and as a way to um, create a buzz around politicians, name recognition, as we all know. Uh, most people, when they look at a ballot, they look at a name recognition. Right. And so um, understanding that they're, they're using the school boards as their ground zero. Um, this last race was designed to, um, it was their test run. It was their test run to see what's going to happen in um, 2024 if they use these same tactics that they have used in this last um, political race. And so... Um, I don't know how to say it. Um, they organized. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it's and, really chilling and, and very, very effective, uh, almost yeah. surgical in its in, in its effectiveness. Um, I'd like to shift and get a little more granular with you because, you know, you have experience with the Clover, Clover Park School District. And uh, this is in Lakewood. You ran for school board there in 2019. Just very briefly, tell us about the Clover Park School District. What should we know about it in terms of its makeup? Well, the Clover Park School District has about 12,000, maybe 13,000 students. Um, about 8,000 of those students are on um, or eligible for free and reduced lunch. So that means about 66% roughly of the school district is low income. Um, our community in schools is actually um, about 35% Hispanic Latino. 30% um, white and 17% um, African American, um, about 5% Native Hawaiian Pacific Islander, and about 4.3% um, Asian. And so one of the new um, demographics that they are keeping track of now, um, as far as um, gender goes, 
And I think it's important to bring up that um, we're 47% female, 51% male, but now we have 1.2% of our students which identify as something other than male or female. So all of this that you're saying here speaks to a student population that has been adversely impacted by the whitewashing of our curriculum. So I, I would love for you to just talk a little bit about you know, how you see the necessity for uh, DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion uh, education for the students of Clover Park. Well, diversity, equity, and inclusion is so important for our students because our students need to be able to see people who look like them. They need to be able to see people that they can identify with. And I don't just mean um, racially, I mean also gender um, specific, those who um, don't identify as a gender also need somebody in the district that they can relate to. Every child needs someone in school that they can feel safe with. And if there's no diversity, then what happens is, is we create a, a culture of imperialism. And so my culture is the only thing that matters. And even though you can't relate to it, I'm still going to force you to assimilate to my culture. This, I want to also point out, is a district that went 58% for Biden and Inslee, even 55% for Rakedahl over Espinoza in the last election. And yet they elected two right-wing extremists in uh, Paul Wagman and Dave Anderson. Um, I, I would ask you, how this happened, but there may not be a good explanation for it. So rather, I, let's just talk about one of the, the right-wing extremists, Paul Wagman. You ran against him in 2019. What are a few of the things that you feel Wegman did to get us to where we are now? Well, I think to understand the history behind Paul Wagman and who Paul Wagman is, um, the reason why I ran for the school board is because I noticed some of the things that he would say when it would concern black and brown students or even students that um, regarding the LGBTQ plus community, everything that he would say about um, black and brown students or the LGBTQ plus community, um, basically it, it started with my community doesn't want. So that tells me he is my representative for my district. I am his community. So when you say my community, then what you're saying essentially is, is people who only think like me, not the people that I've been chosen to represent. I, and I, so- Please continue. Oh, and so the reason um, why I ran for the school board is because one, I wanted to bring um, attention to what was happening. I think a lot of people just got so complacent with the things that he would say that it, they just chopped it up to, oh, well, that's just, you know, how he is. Well, that's good if you want to ignore the problem. But there's children who are also hearing the things that he's saying. And so, um, and one of them lived in my house. Mm. And um, having to explain, you know, the things that he was saying about you know, black and brown students and the things that he was saying about LGBTQ plus students. Um, it's, it's not a conversation that any parent wants to have with their child when you have an elected official who actually, you know, can govern over the curriculum and the things that they are seeing in the classroom.
And then not only that, but at the same time, we had um, teachers who also subscribed to the same ideology. So for instance, we, uh, one of the teachers showed a PragerU film. And if anybody who's familiar with PragerU, PragerU is very far right. Um, they're not concerned about the community, us, the people. They're only concerned with certain people. And so um, this was something, one of the many things that, you know, my child had to endure with, endure in the school district. I, w I just want to drive the point home here that, that you know, Paul Wegman, while he may not be the disease, is certainly a symptom. Um, he very much fostered the environment for what we are seeing now with these attacks. And just to give further context to folks um, and, you know, Tanisha, with your kind permission, I will just share some of the things that we talked about in preparation. Um, yes. You called for Wegman's resignation over comments that he made about students of color and the need to, quote, crack the whip on them. It is my understanding that he also was recently censured by the school board for referring to other council members as, quote, race pimps. He called Al Sharpton and Jesse Jackson slave owners and made numerous misogynist statements. So that brings us to present. What is the nature of the attacks on the Clover Park School Board right now that you can tell us? Um, right now, they are organizing to push mainly they're pushing vouchers. Um, they're organizing to usurp the board. They want to take over the board. They want to make sure that um, diversity, equity, and inclusion does not happen. They want to make sure that um, that uh, sex ed, proper sex ed, is not taught in the classrooms. Um, and they use and they use their narrative. They created this narrative based off of the community's fear. And so even after, um, for myself, just sitting and thinking about um, the attacks that they've created in the community, what really came to mind is, is that they're not concerned with our schools. They're not. They're concerned with pushing their narrative to get to their end game. And their end game is vouchers and making sure that they have the right to put their children where they want to put them on the taxpayer's dollar. I'll just ask you this, and, and there's no way of knowing, but I'll ask you both to speculate, uh, both uh, Tanisha and Ellen. What do you anticipate is coming next in terms of these attacks? Tanisha, I'll start with you. Um, they're going to get worse. Uh, I really believe that um, they're using people's fears to be able to get the power that they want. And as long as people, you know, feel as though they're losing something, they're willing to fight for whatever it is that they feel like they're losing. And so knowing that and that it worked is going to be, it's going to be worse than in 2024 than it's ever been. And they did it by organizing um, with all of the LDs, not just one LD showed up, all the different LDs showed up. And um, my thing is, is that if we continue to operate in silos, we're not gonna win. Um, one of the LDs, and I'm not gonna say which LD, um, it's a democratic LD, they only had $4,000. The school board, um, Dave Anderson raised 
$10,000 in the last school board race. That's almost I, unheard of. Can I call, yeah, I was gonna say, can I call that, that's almost double what his uh, opponents raised, yeah? Right. And he's the one who yeah. ultimately wound up unseating, and he is a, a, a very much right-wing right -wing extremist who ousted uh, Dr. Marty Schaefer, who had been on the board for years and years and years, and was, I think it's fair to say, probably by his own admission, was not exactly a, a liberal uh, uh, fellow in his, in his own leanings. And so, yeah, this is where things are ultimately going. Um, you mentioned that we're in silos, I think, and, and one of the things that we are trying to do here tonight, and, uh, you know, Kat and Louise, I, I know that, that you are part of this as well, we are, as, as part of the Washington Indivisible Network want to be a, a conduit for helping to foster a lot of this, these connection points as much as we possibly can. It's certainly not a, a top-down, but very much a bottom-up movement. And so this is something that I think is a work in progress, but very much something that we want to engender. Uh, Ellen, I'll just ask you, um, what sorts of things would you like to see people doing here uh, at this point? Well, I think uh, people need to show up at school boards, watch the school boards, um, the, the, one of the things that they will try to do is um, get rid of um, rational superintendents and attack teachers. And so showing up and, at, at, I mean, presenting, I think, what we heard earlier about our vision for what we do want, that's really powerful. Um, you know, tell the district specifically what we do want and um, let, let the boards know that we are watching, that all of us are watching. Um, you have to um, back, back up the staff in schools. Um, one of the things that came up here was one of, the, um, one of them was on the board of the YMCA. And finding out that helps because those organizations sometimes have um, policies. And so that was uh, helpful in this case in Clover Park. Um, but talking to your neighbors and getting informed, I mean, the the Republicans are already on the doors. They're knocking on doors right now in March in Lakewood. People are coming over from Puyallup to knock on the doors in Lakewood right now in March. And filing isn't even till May. And of course, that's for legislative races in this state, but they are out there. And churches are, um, you know, they're a natural organizational um, they have it, they are an they have in infrastructure they have buildings weekly meetings newsletters money all set up yeah. so that's why we've been kind of looking at experienced church motion, motion church in Puyallup and harbor view in gig harbor so we have to get out there and, and what you were just saying about having uh win help with a, an infrastructure also for organizing that's just a wonderful idea well, so I will just ask you to dovetail on what Ellen just said, Tanisha. Any thoughts on how we can use this moment to really mobilize folks? Yes. Um, start talking to your LDs. Um, LDs should be talking to each other. They should be supporting each other. And the reason being is, is because you can't do it alone. It's, it's impossible to do it alone. $4,000 isn't going to help anybody. Um, and that's the reality of it. We have to come together and we have to work together to make this happen. Otherwise, it's not. They're already organized. They're already out there doorbelling. They already have, you know, the financial backing. So, um, I mean, I can't express that enough that we cannot do it in silos. We just can't. 
Yeah, this is definitely a moment for collective action. You know, Ellen, I, I'm just moved to ask you before we move on to our next segment here. I know we're really running late, and I, I will just say to Petra and also to Terry, please stand by. We'll be with you in just a moment. But um, I, I thought it would be nice for us to leave this segment on on some of the good things that are happening in our schools that we can take to voters when we're, when we're talking to them about these issues. Well, I I like to, you know, I, I ask myself, what is my favorite thing about public education and having worked in public education for my entire career? I mean, I just think back to students from all different backgrounds working on teams in a math class or in an art class. And I had a student from Yemen working with a student who lived on in the hilltop in Tacoma, uh, you know, and they would never, where else would they have that chance? I mean, public education offers these opportunities and um, it prepares students to live in um, communities of all kinds, diverse communities. So I wanna say my favorite, but I think one of the things we could do is invite all the attendees here to start uh, developing your own lists of what you love about public education, what is so great about it, and be ready to sell it at the doors. Be ready to um, build enthusiasm for public education, rebuild enthusiasm, and, and sell it. Here, here. Okay. Well, uh, I just, I honestly, I can't thank uh, both of you enough, uh, uh, not just for your, your words here tonight, also for your work, for bringing this program to us. Uh, can we just get a, a collective uh, bit of love? For both Tanisha and Ellen, we would, I, I just I adore you both. Thank you so much for taking the time tonight. Thank I really you appreciate so it. Much. And before we get to our next panelist, Kat has uh, another testimonial uh, for us. Kat, over to you. Yes, Fee Michaud is a parent and district parent advisory committee member in Oak Oak Harbor Public Schools on Whidbey Island. Fee writes. As a parent who's extremely involved with my children's education, I attended virtually every school board meeting during the last election year. For those outside of Washington, that was last year. When our elected school board members tried to hold their meetings in person, they were accosted and loudly interrupted by a right-wing group called the Three Percenters. It was so bad that they had to end the meeting early and move to a different room for their safety. After this happened multiple times, the board decided to go back to virtual meetings. The Three Percenters, three percenters continued to show up on meeting nights and yelled into the district office while also holding anti-mask signs. I'm happy to announce that two candidates who are part of the right-wing group did not get elected. However, we're very concerned about the next open seat. I, that is, and I, I want to say thank you to Fee for that. And, and also, I just need to point out that they yelled into an empty office. I just, <laughs> I mean, my God. All right. So listen, uh, we are going to move to the eastern part of the state now and talk to uh, one of my dear friends, uh, Petra Hoy. So uh, Petra is a community organizer and activist in Spokane Valley. She's founder of Be the Change 509, which has a very large indivisible membership. And I think this is going to be a very interesting contrast to talk about what is happening on the in one of our bluest cities, Tacoma, to the area where where, uh, where, where you are, Petra. Um, it is Spokane Valley, for, for those of you in Washington, uh, you will recognize it's Matt Shea's old district. So it's very, very red. So Petra, I know you're going to use some, some talking uh, aids here, but just, uh, and, and of course, I will remind you again that a lot of this is going to be audio for people who are listening later on podcast. But tell us a little bit about your district and what you're up against. Yes, 
so thank you for having me. Um, it was so exciting to listen to everybody. So I often say we're practically Idaho. Um, so what's really hard about us is I think that we have this history of Christian nationalism. Like you said, we had 51st state stuff, Matt Shea stuff. So for the seeds that you were talking about, I think it's really fertile ground for a lot of that. Um, sadly, like even the Aryan Nation is making a comeback with our neighbors in Idaho. And we've really noticed that the other side is very organized, like a lot of the other speakers talked about. They have PACs, they have nonprofits, and a lot of them have like the religious um, zealotry that they really feel that Jesus sent them to do this work, which is very motivating. And I think it's very compelling when somebody, you know, in your church, a pastor, um, someone you respect tells you, you know, the schools are evil. Um, it's very persuasive, and what that's also led to is they feel like anything goes. You know, like they can lie, they can be um, borderline violent and vulgar and threatening and see us as the enemy. Um, also, we've had the history with the um, employing sovereign citizens tactics, citizens movement tactics, um, with doing their public records requests, um, paper terrorism. So that's part of the problem. And then also we have another segment that kind of wants us to be quiet. You know, it's it's easier, I think, they're almost, it's more comfortable to capitulate with the alt-right than it is to stand up to them. And they want to believe that if we just get rid of the mass mandates, everything's going to go away, which we know is just the start. And lastly, overall, it's just, it's um, kind of exhausting and gaslighting works and all those tricks um, kind of work and people are scared to show up. Yeah, I mean, it's so this is I mean, you're laying out a very, very uh, unfortunately, it's it's a rather familiar scene, uh, what, what we're seeing there. Um, and I'm sorry that it's I, I would imagine that it's even uh, more intense uh, on, on your side of the of, of the of the mountains. Um, talk a little bit about some of the actions that you've been taking against this. So what we did last year, which was pretty exciting, we weren't really paying attention to the school board race. And all of a sudden the primary came up and there were three terrible um, options. So we found a really great history teacher, retired history teacher in the community forever, um, hates bullies, you know, so he was our perfect candidate, had a writing campaign. We got over 8,000 um, votes, which was really epic. We made inroads with our um, LDS community, which is the Mormon community and conservatives. Um, because there were a lot of people, like um, Tinslin mentioned, that you know they might be anti-sex ed and anti-mask, but they're pro-public education. So we were able to reach out to them. Um, sadly, uh, Pam Orbaugh did win. She is a physician's assistant who is anti-mask, and she's also a WSU nursing instructor. So if there's any of you Cougar alumni that would like to make a comment about that to WSU, it's a little uh, disturbing. Our superintendent is resigning, so they were able to um, push him out. But we um, we do have an opening, so if anybody is interested in being a superintendent out here, we will be your best friends. <laughs> um, we just really could use somebody from the outside who has um, a backbone, basically. So I do a few more things that we did. If you're if you're interested, we still have Please. time. Yeah. Um, so we kind of looked at this. Um, so after we didn't win that school board race, we took like a three prong approach. And I wish I would have had the um, the information about the talking points before I pulled this together. But so we look at one is supporting the current teachers and the districts 
because they're just dropping like flies, you know, like the good ones are leaving and then the MAGA ones are feeling pretty comfortable. So we've just tried to be a presence of like support and also encouraging because we have a 4-1 board right now, but they just get beat down. So we try to keep encouraging them to do the right thing. Then there's that 65% of the population that doesn't pay any attention and isn't voting. So we're trying to, um, we do a lot of letters to the editor. We've gotten a lot of press and we encourage people to just come and speak also because then they talk to people about their experience too, which is helpful. And then we're also trying to hold, um, you know, hold people accountable for their craziness. And we're reaching out to pastors because this is quite the white Christian nationalist movement. And it's up to other Christians really to say, hey, this isn't cool. Um, so that's been hard. People are kind of reluctant, but we're making a little bit inroads. And we've done um, like service projects where we've um, given the schools, like every schools plus the bus people that run the transportation service, um, treats and cookies. We're doing another um, act of kindness for the principals. And just to kind of have that juxtaposition of there's these people that want to defund the district. And then there's those of us that want to help and support. And we're also working on doing a rally with the unions because the unions are also really vilified along with equity and um, social emotional learning. But um, so we've been trying to work with them to have something to help boost up the union as well. I cannot thank you enough for all of that. And I do encourage you to get on, on uh, Petra's email list and become a gladiator. That is how she yes, refers to We have so many gladiators here today. I'm very excited about that. Thank <laughs> very, <you>. very cool. <laughs> uh, listen, Petra, and for, I was just going to tell folks, uh, Petra, uh, she graciously agreed to come in and do this at the last second. And we unfortunately did not have as much time as I would have liked. So Petra, if you would come on the podcast in the next couple of weeks, I would love to have a more protracted and in-depth conversation about the work that you're doing. Will you do that? Well, for, for, for us? Sure. Okay, that'd be wonderful. Petra Hoy, everybody, please uh, give it up for her. Send some, uh, some uh, wet side of the mountain love out your way. Thank you so much, my friend. So uh, we are going to close tonight on the perspective of teachers in all of this. Um, and I will introduce Terry Jess. He is a Bellevue teacher who pioneered an ethnic studies program for his school, and he was nominated for an NEA Social Justice Award. Uh, hi, Terry. How are you tonight? Hey, I'm doing very well. So I'm very encouraged after hearing uh, the great work that's being done all across the state. Well, you know, you're one of the people who's doing the great work. And so I want to say thank you to you. Um, and let's just start here. I'll just ask you, you know, given somebody who has pioneered an ethnic studies program uh, where you are, how have these attacks on school boards and curricula impacted your work? Yeah, I mean, so for me, as somebody who uh, bl like blares the line between being an activist and an educator, um, it has all it's done is encouraged me to just keep at it and keep doing the work. Um, I have the privilege as a white male to be able to absorb some of the risk and some of that pushback and some of that fear uh, with far less consequences than my peers of color. But I do want to acknowledge that for my colleagues of color that are doing this work, in addition to the you know tax that people of color have as being in the education system in general, because our system is still racist. Um, now we, they have this added fear about, are they going to get doxxed? Are they going to have angry calls and letters and principal meetings um, going on? And then ultimately, uh, 
what worries me is I felt like we were making a lot of progress with teachers that don't consider themselves activists, but do care deeply about their students. And we were seeing more culturally responsive curriculum, more focus on SEL, more focus on disrupting the status quo. And now I'm starting to see folks push back. There's a fear uh, that I don't know if I can have this conversation in my class because uh, I don't want you know, a parent to walk in unannounced in the beginning of my day uh, without scheduling an appointment and accost me. And, and you know, I don't want uh, to be mentioned at the next school board meeting and those types mm. of things. So there's definitely a fear that's hitting those that, you know, don't quite see themselves as activists and just want to teach and kind of, you know, be able to help kids without fear, fearing for their safety. Whew. Yeah. And that's on the, the teacher end. And so then seeing this from the student end, how are you seeing the students impacted? How is this impacting their educational experience in all this? Yeah. I mean, I think ultimately, right, if anybody took their foot off the gas pedal in having these conversations, we are doing a disservice to our students. And so they are not getting um, a true education about our history and about our current state of events and about the beautiful expertise that our students of color and our LGBTQ students bring into the space. Uh, because when you don't have the conversation in the classroom, where are they going to have it, right? Online is an echo chamber, their family, their churches, you know, wherever they may be coming from is an echo chamber. Schools are the only place that brings us all together to truly be able to decenter our own will, desire, goals, point of view in order to absorb whatever other people are experiencing. Uh, and really be able to determine who is the most impacted and how does that impact my view. Um, and so I, I think that's a big challenge, but I gotta be honest, the students uh, that I work with, they aren't having any of this. Uh, they they are, this energizes them and they're organizing and they're pushing back. And I see a greater level across the pandemic, even with remote learning. Um, you know, people talk about this learning loss and I always push back. I'm like, what learning loss? These kids were learning all along. They're connecting all along. They're organizing. They're getting into this work, regardless if it's happening in school or not. So why wouldn't schools want to be a place that fosters that? Ben, you're, you're, you're pumping me up here. I just, I love hearing all of this, you know, and I was going to put this question to you and I'll put it to you, but I'll ask you about your students. So one of the GOP talking points we know is that critical race theory teaches white students to hate themselves. I, I was going to ask you how you rebut that, but I'd be more curious to have you speculate on how you think your students would rebut that argument. <laughs> well, I, I think, uh, to be honest, I think of many of the conservative students that have been in my class, whether that's my race in the U.S. class, which is the ethnic studies elective course, but also over the last four years, we have done decolonizing U.S. history, which is the core U.S. history for the entire district. Uh, and it is very much an ethnic studies course, but we were able to get it in as a core class. Uh, by completely revolutionizing it. And, and even my conservative students in the class, when they write their reflections, when they talk about it, um, they talk about how it wasn't, the conversations weren't how they thought they were going to go. They were kind of thought that it was going to be like, this is the way you have to think and you're wrong and your way of life and your view, like everything is bad, but they got to bring themselves into it. They got to share their perspective while holding our classroom norms of centering people's humanity. And so they can have all the points they want. They can have the disagreements. They can have that while we're sending humanity. So I think my conservative students would push back and kind of be able to talk to folks and be like, it's not the boogeyman that you think it is. We can have this conversation. We are having these conversations. And I didn't come out of it as a commie. Uh, you know? <laughs> and, then, and of course, my students of color are just, they're going to push back right away of like, 
this, the, you know, I have had to sit in classrooms that have constantly had to make me feel bad about who I am yeah. because there is no representation. I don't see teachers that look like me. I don't see principals that look like me. I don't read novels by people who look like me or sound like me. I don't see history of my people. Uh, and so all of that, I think that they would really challenge of like, are you, you know, are white students experiencing discomfort because they are being told that they are somehow inherently bad or is the shift starting to feel, you know, like when you're accustomed to privilege, equality feels like oppression. Right. And so is, is that coming up? And so I think, I think that's there, um, you know, that some of my students would kind of push back on uh, as well. But um, yeah, no, I, and ultimately what does that say about our beliefs in our students? Like if, if, if I had a talking point that said you talking about racism and talking about how it still exists in our society, both systemically and on an individual basis, is going to make my child feel bad about themselves. What do you believe about your child? Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's a phenomenal point. And you know, honestly, as you're talking here, I keep thinking about how you know you. I was not expecting you were going to say what you said about Sorry. your conservative students, and that you know you you. It, it almost seems like if at at scale, this could be like an ambassador program to you know these parents who are out at these meetings and saying like, hey you know, chill out. It's, it's, it's not what you think it is. Um, so, you know, we're, we're really running up against the clock here and there's so many questions. <laughs> we actually have a number of, of questions that have come in for, for our panelists. So we're hoping everybody's going to stick around here, but you know, one of the goals tonight, and we talked about this, you and I were prepping is to get people mobilized. What would you say? Cause we know that this is the key. I mean, Tanisha talked about this. Ellen talked about this. Tinselin talked about this. Petra talked about this. What would you like to see people uh, do to get motivated and show up here? Yeah, there's been some great work, you know, that has already been shared and I love it. One of the things that I was kind of sitting with is we are seeing um, the bundling of issues, right? Like they're taking those that don't want masks or, you know, want school in person and they're bundling that with anti-CRT and they're bundling it with these other things. And so, you know, we do have to be very clear in like reaching out to folks that might be lured into that bundle because they're they're talking about the issue I care about as well but talking about the holistic of our schools and being able to do that. And a very tangible thing that I would love everybody to do is to reach out to your local schools, regardless if you have children there uh, and just, you know, contact the principal or an assistant principal and say, look, um, I want to support the anti-racism work. I want to support the racial equity work that's going on. Can you point me to a staff member who's leading that work, who's in charge of that work, your equity team, if they have equity teams, right, whatever it may be, Get that contact information and then reach out to that person and just volunteer a connection. You know, that, hey, when somebody in your building comes under attack for doing this work, reach out to me and I will connect with Indivisible. I will connect with others uh, to be able to make sure that we, one, we're sending messages of support to those teachers that we're making sure that we're writing letters to the superintendent to support the work, that we're showing up at school board meetings or submitting public comments um, to be able to counteract that. Because uh, I, I can tell you, it, even with the amazing networks I have, it is very easy to start to feel isolated and alone doing this work, particularly throughout this pandemic. And teachers are already um, facing like kind of the most unprecedented two years that we've ever had uh, and burning out at unprecedented rates. And so, you know, a, a, a local church, a progressive church in Bellevue reached out to me uh, about the decolonizing curriculum work and said, hey, give me a list of all the teachers that are doing this work. 
Uh, and so I did, and they sent everybody, a, you know, a, a beautiful letter or card and a gift card, you know, to get yourself something. And just, it was so encouraging for folks to receive that to see, because all, otherwise all we hear is the negative, right? Mm -hmm. We see the media coverage or we see the, the angry school board comments and all that. And it just starts to feel like, do I actually have my community behind me? And we need to be able to foster those connections. That's a, actually a really great place for us to, to leave our, our portion of the discussion. And we're going to close with our Q&A. Um, and actually, before we do that, I want to acknowledge Dave Berg, who is here uh, from Puyallup, uh, Puyallup School Board. Uh, but we have one last testimonial. We really do hope everybody's going to stay with us to the end because we do have some great questions and our, our panelists are, are on hand to, uh, to answer them. And if you have any other questions, please hit us up with those. Uh, so Kat, back over to you. Yes, our friend Malcolm Cumming over on Whidbey Island writes, in the recent school director's race in South Whidbey Island, three women were put up to run by an alt-right Republican party, uh, by alt-right Republican party people, excuse me. Their real complaints were focused on being against teaching real black history, equality, and age-appropriate sex ed. They were also anti-LGBTQ. They hid their real agenda of grievance by claiming that they wanted to spend more money on South Whidbey High students' sports programs, but they lost support by being boorish and disruptive. They were their own political enemies. Progressive incumbents each won by around 70% of votes. Yay, go South Whidbey. Love that. And, and I'm going to butcher this, but Slava Ukraini. I, I think that's how it's uh, that's how it's said. I appreciate you putting that uh, that sign up, Kat. So, uh, so our final Q and A. Um, so, one of the questions that we had this came from uh, my friend Susan, and this is for you, Terry. How can people who don't have kids best get involved with our schools? Who should they contact? Yeah, like I said, um, I think reaching out to the building principals to ask about connecting with the equity, and you may have to ask more than once. Right, people are busy getting a lot of emails. It may take more time to get involved. But I guarantee once you get connected with the person who's doing the work that they will reach out. They will keep a sticky note on their computer uh, with your email address, your phone number to be able to get connected. Um, you can also look some districts, you know, have equity departments um, or have equity kind of advisory councils, whatever it is. Scour the school district website that you're in. Find the people that are doing the work. If you can't find them, reach out to the building level and just ask because like, there's always going to be somebody like me in that building that that needs that support. Uh, Wendy from in Indivisible Tacoma asks, how can we support our teachers in school in a concrete way? Well, I think we just answered that for you, Wendy. Um, Riley Dolan asks from Onalaska Equity, uh, what should rural advocacy, group, uh, advocacy groups in predominantly conservative areas do to fight back? Petra, you want to feel that one? Well, show up is a good is a good start. And I think, too, they assume that they're the only voices. Right. And so I think it's important that this that 65 percent of the community that isn't paying attention knows that it isn't just this dominant Christian nationalist group. That's that's um, the only voice that there's other voices there. So I would just say start start there. Go to the school board meetings. Um, and if you you know want to be on our list, we have quite a few tangible things um, on there too. This is an, uh, another question from Wendy, and I think uh, uh, Tanisha, this would be uh, good for you. Um, how can we effectively talk with those who are upset about CRT and public schools in general? And I ask you because you're a community advocate. Uh, any any thoughts on that? Yes, I started asking the question. Um, when people say, oh, well, that's CRT. Really? How so? Because I think what happens is, is that people come 
expect you to come back at them. And by changing my tone and by changing how, um, and by not being combative, you know, I mean, I could easily go back and forth with somebody, but explain to me what you think CRT is. Oh, okay. So you think that we're teaching um, elementary children the um, concepts, a legal concept that talks about laws and analyzing laws? Hmm, okay, interesting. Now tell me, what do you know about CRT? And they can't, most people can't tell you. Or, or what they tell you are the far right talking points that they heard on the news or that they heard from their politicians or that they heard from their friends. And so I start by asking the question, one, to, to throw them off guard and two, to help them realize that you're, you're accusing someone or you know a district or whatever of doing something that you have no idea what it is. So I think that when we when we come back to the to the base of okay, well I'm not going to fight you on this, but you said diversity is divisive. How so? Do you work in a diverse environment? Are your children at school in a diverse environment? So are we teaching our children that everybody matters, that all all voices matter and all voices have power? Or is that what we're teaching our kids? Because if that's what you're teaching your kids, then basically what you're saying is, is that you enjoy being in a diverse environment. Because now you're learning and you're growing from the people who are around you. And so now, just like, you know, instead of being combative, now we're able to have a conversation about, um, you know, whatever it is that you want to talk about. But I think that if, if we keep going at each other like this, Nobody's hearing anything. And I think sometimes validating, okay, oh, I understand, that's horrible. Who wouldn't want, you know, their children to feel like they're, or who would want to feel like they're going to lose something? Right. You know, we all have that. That's, that's not, you know, our Democrat or Republican thing. We're here because we don't want to lose education for our children. You're here. You're so, here. You know, um, I think bringing the human, the human humanity side back to it. I think people get so caught up in the narrative that they don't even know what they're fighting for. They just know that somebody told me that this is bad and I should not like it. And well, if somebody's telling you that I'm going to teach your children to hate themselves, of course, right. who wouldn't fight against that? But now what if I change the narrative and I say to you, you know what, just like you want your child to be able to show up in the classroom and be their, be their full self, I want the same thing for my child. But if only thing my child sees is your culture and your history and, and um, all the things that represent you, then how can my child feel empowered? If the only thing they see is you. Mm -hmm. Who does that, what does that tell them about their identity and who they are? I mean, those are basic human questions. It's not a, an issue of, you know, the, the, le the legality or the, um, I don't know the right word, um, 
<laughs> I get so riled up that I. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean, your 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 point is extraordinary, and and I, I think that's that's exactly right. I mean, I think most people who uh, claim to be against CRT uh, mm -hmm. are not in any way informed as to what CRT. It's my understanding it was actually an intellectual uh, discipline of study uh, in in the 1970s. So. Hmm. Mm -hmm. So we're going to do a very, just as we wrap up here, I just thought it'd be fun to do a very quick rapid round um, as we close out because my friend Joe asked, you know, a lot of people have been saying uh, show up tonight. So I'm going to ask each of you as we close in one sentence, can you say what show up means to you? Uh, Ellen, what does show up mean to you? Uh, it means reading the news, keeping up with what's going on in your own community and um, talk uh, <laughs> Talking to people who work in education, um, it means um, being involved in all elections and making sure people vote and stay informed to vote well. Tanisha, what does uh, show up mean to you? Show up means to me, um, it doesn't mean just physically. You know, um, our candidates need money. There's so many ways that we can all help. You may not be able to walk up a hill, but you can you know, you can phone call, you can text message, you can, you know, talk to your friends and neighbors, we can all do something. Yep. And showing up means being present in what's happening around you. I love it. Excellent. But uh, Petra, what does showing up mean to you? Gosh, what everybody just said too, and I think there's also this little element, I don't know quite how to put it, but um, to just keep getting up, like I love that Muhammad Ali quote that it's not how many times you get knocked down, it's how many times you keep getting up and that you keep shining, right? Like you keep having some joy in the situation and keep showing up because I think it is based in love, right? This We're doing this because we love our community and we love our kids and yeah, so keep shining. Keep shining. I love that. And I love I'll always take a, a Muhammad Ali reference. Um, Terry, you get the last word. What does showing up mean to you, man? Uh, I think for for white folks in particular, right, it is absorbing the risk of this work, right? Being the ones who are showing up physically, if you're able to putting yourself between, you know, that uh, the the aggression and those that are the most vulnerable in our community, it is. Um, utilizing your resources. And if you can't utilize your resources, serving as a conduit to those who can, right? Building that connections. And I really love what Petra said, right? Like the greatest act of resistance we can do is to continue to center love and community um, throughout this 